Each season, Guys Telling Stories seeks out fascinating people with a good story to tell. I'm Rich Douglas, and this man beside me is my co-host, Bill Easton. We're a couple of guys who love a good story. So join us on our quest to find fascinating people with a good story to tell. This is Guys Telling Stories. All right, Bill, welcome. Here we go. All right. I'm so excited about our guest today, Clint Hill. He is a living legend in my mind. Mm. Secret Service agent for five presidents. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I've read a few books about the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and from the Zapruder film, he is in these pictures. He's that Secret Service agent who is walking behind the car. He's the Secret Service agent that jumped on the back of it and you know rode to the hospital with Mrs. Kennedy and President Kennedy. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. I know. And the fact that we get a chance to talk to him is going to be fantastic. Yeah, I'm excited. You know what else I'm excited about? What else are you excited about? Well, you know how we like uh, nice meals cooked at home? Mm-hmm. Well, our friends at Blue Apron are offering a better way to cook with fresh ingredients and great recipes. And the best part, they deliver it right to your door, Rich. They save you the hassle of grocery shopping and meal planning because they deliver the recipes and pre-portioned ingredients. It couldn't be easier. No. So right now... Our listeners get $30 off your first order with Blue Apron by going to guystellingstories.com, clicking on Try at Home. Mm, speaking of getting something stunning, our Guys Stone Stories website is powered by Banzoogle. Banzoogle is our website provider, and Banzoogle helps you easily create a stunning website because they have everything you need from beautiful templates to a zero commission online store. So you heard that right, a zero commission online store. You can have a website where you can sell your stuff and keep all the money. Anything you make, create. I hear uh, people making birdhouses, their own t-shirts, uh, homemade soap. I hear people like making homemade soap. I didn't tell anyone I was doing that. <laughs> well, whatever you sell, Banzoogle helps you create a website and set up a zero commission online store. So right now, you can get your website's first 60 days free by going to guystellingstories.com and clicking on Try at Home. Sounds good. Yeah, that's guystellingstories.com. And click on Try at Home to get your new website's first 60 days for free with Banzoogle. And buy my soap. <laughs> Is that for sale yet? No. All right, Bill. Clint Hill. Clint Hill. What, I, I'm so excited to hear his stories from decades and decades of being a Secret Service agent for five different presidents. Oh, I don't... Does he talk to a lot of people about this stuff? You know, he's written... More, I think he's written three books. Okay. And I'm sure that he has shared his stories before, but I feel like we're talking to someone that is a bridge between a generation before mine and the generation we're currently living in. And this is just incredible for us. I'm mm. honored. So uh, let's get to uh, let's get to our guest. Let's give uh, Clint a call. Let's do it. Clint, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, nice to be able to talk with you. Can you tell our listeners where they can um, find you online, find your book? Books, I should say. Well, we have uh, written, actually written three books. So, uh, first book was Mrs. Kennedy and Me. The second book was Five Days in November. And the third book was uh, Five Presidents, My Extraordinary Journey with Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Ford. And that covered my uh, 17 years in the U.S. Secret Service. That's amazing. I can be reached on uh, ClintHillSecretService.com. That's my website. 
Yeah, and I would encourage listeners to go check it out because Clint, you know, that's how I, I found you originally. And, you know, some of these stories in your books are just so fascinating. Uh, you know, history and English were always my two favorite subjects. And we're talking to the man who actually lived the stories. So uh, so let's get let's get into it. We always like to start out with a root story. So, you know, family life when you were growing up before Secret Service, what was life like uh, for you? Well, I was born uh, up in uh, North Dakota. And uh, my birth mother was unable to take care of me, so she uh, placed me in the North Dakota Children's Home. And I was there for a period, short period of time, about three months, and then I was adopted by a wonderful family, Chris and Jenny Hill from Washburn, North Dakota, and that's where I grew up. I spent uh, my first 18 years there, finished high school there. It's a small town of 912 people. I knew everybody. They all knew me, and they knew everybody in the town. So if I ever got in trouble, my folks would know before I even got home. <laughs> so you never got in trouble. You tried to avoid that. Uh, but when I went away to college, my intention was to become a uh, history teacher and to coach athletics. But uh, the Korean War had just ended, but the, still the draft was in, was in place, and I had to go into the military immediately after graduating college. And I went into the Army, and they selected me to go to the Army Intelligence Center, and I was trained there to become a special agent in counterintelligence. And I did that for about three years. When it was time to get out, I was looking for something to do. I now really thought that I wanted to remain in the investigative law enforcement field rather than go back into teaching. And so I looked around and uh, the counterintelligence corps was pretty small and I kind of liked that atmosphere. And I looked for a law enforcement agency that was small but had an extremely good reputation and I found the Secret Service. The trouble was there were only 269 agents in the organization at that time. Oh, wow. And so there weren't any vacancies until somebody either died or retired. Yeah. And in my case, a gentleman retired and I got his spot. And that's how I actually became a Secret Service agent. That's cool. Yeah. What for, for people who are trying to compare Secret Service back then to maybe what they're more familiar with now from you know, TV, books, and movies, you know, what was daily life like for you when you were first starting out as a Secret Service agent? Well, our major uh, interest at the time, besides protecting the president uh, of the United States, we were involved in uh, suppressing counterfeit, counterfeiting U.S. currency, bonds, and that type of thing, and the forgery of U.S. government checks, and that was a pr pretty much a full-time job. I happened to be in the uh, Denver field office of the U.S. Secret Service when I was uh, initially accepted. Uh, and uh, we in Denver had the uh, privilege of having President Mrs. Eisenhower come there frequently because that was Mrs. Eisenhower's hometown and her mother still lived there. And so we got involved with protecting the Eisenhowers when I was very, very young in the Secret Service. And, you know, for you personally, what, what was family life like? Were you, you know, a young bachelor or did you, you know, have a wife and, uh, you know, start a family? I got married when I was a junior in college. Okay. Which was a mistake. <laughs> uh, I mean, you, that was just too young. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, so I was married, uh, and uh, our first son was born while we were in Denver in 19... He was born in 1957, uh, 56. And uh, then after I'd been in the Secret Service Denver office for one year, I was transferred to the White House detail. Now, the White House detail was the elite group of agents that protected the president. Uh, in 1959, when I was assigned there, uh, President Eisenhower was, was in office, and we had uh, maybe 36 agents on the detail, I guess, at that time. about some, We had a, about three of them signed to Mrs. Uh, Eisenhower. And the rest of us were assigned to the president. And uh, I, I got there at a very uh, great time because uh, the fall of 1959, the U.S. Air Force acquired three 707-type jets. And they were uh, made into commercial-type jets for passengers. And they were made available to the White House. And President Eisenhower took advantage of it. In December of 1959, we went on an extensive trip. Uh, we we left. We flew from Andrews Air Force Base to Rome and then on to Ankara, Turkey. From there down to Karachi, Karachi up to Af- Kabul, Afghanistan, down to New Delhi, India, then to Tehran, Iran, to Athens, Greece, to wow. Tunis, Tunisia, over to, to France, to Paris. Paris down to Madrid, Spain, to Casablanca, and finally came back to the States. Now, that was my first trip outside the country, except for having been uh, one trip into Canada. I was, uh, at that time, 27 years old. I had been given a United States diplomatic passport. Uh, It was a real tremendous adventure for this young kid from North Dakota. Yes, it is. That's that's remarkable, and... and um, I mean, <laughs> I've, I haven't been anywhere in any of those places. <laughs> well, a president wouldn't go to many of those places today, that's no, for sure. That's he wouldn't true. be going to Karachi, Kabul, or Tehran, I don't think. <laughs> well, so you got a chance to kind of see the world at a young age. That's amazing. I mean, like Bill was saying, I, I, I can only imagine, you know, being a, a young man, you know, flying around the world, seeing these places. You know, so, Clint, if we kind of look ahead to some of these experiences with these presidents that you, you know, protected, I know a lot of people are going to think about the... Kennedy. The Kennedy. Yeah. But your detail was with Mrs. Kennedy. Is that correct? Yes, I was. I left uh, President Eisenhower uh, two days after the election in 1960 and was uh, ordered to return to Washington, D.C. We were in Augusta, Georgia at the time. Ike was playing golf at the uh, uh, golf course there in Augusta. And then I was then given the assignment of being assigned to Mrs. Jacqueline Kennedy. There were two agents that had that assignment. I was one of them. I was real upset about the fact that I was given that assignment because I really wanted to be with the president because that's where all the activity always was. Oh, yeah. in the past, uh, first ladies didn't uh, travel much, and they didn't do much. Uh, but it turned out with Mrs. Kennedy, she traveled a lot, and we did a lot. Yes, she did. <laughs> yeah, there was a whole Kennedy mystique, as they call it, with 
uh, kind of, didn't she have a, she remodeled a little bit and she was in the public eye much more than, let's say, you know, other first ladies. Very true. She did re- completely revamped the White House. She wanted it to be a historical place uh, representing uh, the United States with the paintings and furniture of that uh, time in the past. And uh, she did a remarkable job. She was able to establish a system of uh, selling little brochures to finance most of this thing. A lot of things were donated as gifts as well. But uh, she really had much more influence on a lot of things than you realize. You know, for example, take Air Force One. When President Eisenhower had Air Force One, it was kind of silver, had an orange nose cone, the tail was partly orange, and she had that revamped uh, with the assistance of some uh, person that she knew, and it turned into exactly what you see today. It hasn't been changed since, uh, I guess, late 1961. That's cool. I didn't know that. And she had influence in, in, all, in many, many places that people just don't realize that she had a hand in the making changes of that nature. You know, in all the pictures and, you know, the Secret Service agent is sort of not seen and not heard, you know, kind of blending in with the background. So, you know, if you can kind of take us behind the scenes as you are with her on a day to day basis, uh, what's your relationship like with her? I think uh, from, you know, one of your books, it was a, a pretty special one, right? Yeah, we we eventually we got to know each other very, very well. She trusted me. I had great respect for her and and she respected me uh a lot of times it was just the two of us uh, whether she'd be in uh, middleburg virginia where she loved to go they had at least a farm there and she she could go there and ride horses because she loved riding cross country with the various hunt clubs there in the middleburg virginia area uh so over the period of time that i was with her we just gradually got to be uh, closer and closer and uh, we were very very good friends that's incredible to hear. And, you know, I know it's a touchy issue, at least, it, but it's a part of history. I know it's a part of history. Uh, on that day in 1963 in, in Dallas, Texas, from your eyes and, and your ears, you know, wh- what did you see and, and what did you hear? Well, you know, uh, the trip into Texas began on the 21st of November, 1963. And it was a trip uh for President Kennedy and Vice President Johnson to become very visible to all the people that they encountered in Texas because they were trying to ensure that they could win the state of Texas in 1964. In 1960, they won Texas, but the margin was pretty slim. And they needed that a large uh, number of electoral votes that Texas represented in order to, they knew that they needed that to win the presidency in 64. So we went into Texas and that was the the idea, maximum exposure. We used open top cars. Uh, We, president had a stop on occasion so he could shake people's hand. He'd bring the crowd over to him. It was just one of those situations. And so on the 22nd, we had been in Fort Worth the night before, and we went into Dallas, arriving at Love Field. 
uh, the motorcade route into the city was uh, one in which we were encountered thousands of people. They were very friendly, very enthusiastic. From a political point of view, a public relations point of view, it was really a successful trip up until the point of entering Dealey Plaza. When we got up to Dealey Plaza, we had to go through that area in order to get on the Stemmons Freeway to go to the location where President Kennedy was to give a luncheon speech, the trademark. And so we were traveling past a building called the Texas School Book Depository, about to go under a railroad uh, overpass. I was in the car immediately behind the president's car on the left-hand side of the running board. In the president's car were the president in the right rear, Mrs. Kennedy in the left rear, Governor Connolly immediately in front of President Kennedy, and Mrs. Connolly immediately in front of Mrs. Kennedy. Then in the front were the agent driver and the supervisor. So the car behind was called the follow-up car, Secret Service car. I was on the running board on the left-hand side. I was observing the area of the grassy area on the left and the numbers of people on the overpass where the railroad was. And all of a sudden, I heard this explosive noise over my right shoulder. It came from the right rear. I started to turn in that direction, but my eyes only got as far as the back of the president's car because I saw that he reacted and grabbed at his throat and it all of a sudden moved slightly to his left. And I realized at that time that this explosive noise I heard wasn't a firecracker or anything of that nature. It was a gunshot. And so I jumped from my position. It started to run toward the president's car with the intent of getting up on the back of it to form a shield or a barrier there to protect both President and Mrs. Kennedy. I had to navigate myself uh, between a motorcycle officer who was immediately on the left next to me by the car, and then the follow-up car that I had been on. And I ran between the two vehicles to get to the president's car. And just as I approached it, there was a third shot that rang out. It hit the president in the head. And there was a real major explosion of his head, causing brain matter, bone fragments, and blood to come out completely over the back of the car, Mrs. Kennedy and myself. Right after that happened, Mrs. Kennedy started to come up on the trunk. And I got up on top of the back of the trunk and pushed her back into the back seat. And when I did that, the president's body fell to its left with her head, his head in her lap. And I got up on top and laid above them on, on just the edge of the trunk area uh, to shield them. But as I looked down at the president, his head was in her lap, his right side of his face was up. I could see his eyes appeared fixed. There was a hole in the skull. I could see that in that area there was no brain matter left. So I assumed it was a fatal shot. I turned and I gave a thumbs down to the follow-up car crew. And then I screamed at the driver to get us out of there. And he accelerated and we raced down the highway, the chief of police from Dallas got in front of us in a lead car to, to guide us to the nearest hospital, which turned out to be Parkland Hospital. We were going around uh, between 60 and 80 miles an hour at Buried. 
And uh, by the time we got there, uh, you know, just I had no hope that he was even alive anymore. And uh, we got him, finally got him into the trauma room. Uh, Mrs. Kennedy initially wouldn't let go of him, and I had to take off my suit coat to cover up his head and upper back before she'd allow us to remove him from the car because she didn't want it, people to see what a terrible situation it was. It's, it was a real bloody mess is what it was. And she didn't want people to see that. And I recognized, she didn't say that to me, but I recognized that's what was going on, and that's when I covered up his head and, and upper back. And we got to the hospital. The doctors feverishly worked on him. There was nothing they could do, and at 1 o'clock, they declared, declared that he was dead. I'm, uh, you know, you, you, you've, you see the story and you've read about it and you've heard about it, and I've never heard anybody who was there ever give uh, this point of just just telling me and listening to it and the serious tone in your voice. And uh, and I'm assuming you've probably told this story hundreds of times. Um, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible that, that, that you were there and had to go through this and, and did go through it. And uh, it, it's remarkable to be talking to you about it yeah and clint i'm i'm curious about those those next you know 72 hours or so um a guy like yourself are you even taking the opportunity to to get a, a any sleep at all or are you just with mrs kennedy 24 7 well we had to we take we took the body back to washington on air force one took it out to bethesda took him out to bethesda where they did an autopsy and that autopsy was over around four in the morning. And then we took the body and Mrs. Kennedy and by now Robert Kennedy, the president's brother had joined us. And as well as other family members, we went back to the white house and I stayed at the white house until oh, about 6am. And by that time, Mrs. Kennedy and the other members of the family had gone up to the residential section, of the white house, which is on the second floor. But then I went home and I just changed clothes and showered and cleaned up as best I could. And just, I couldn't even eat. I tried to, but I couldn't. And then I just went right back to work. Uh, There were only two of us that were assigned to Mrs. Kennedy. The other agents had now moved off of the Kennedy detail and on over to now President Johnson, because he had taken the oath of office on Air Force One as we sat in on uh, in the aircraft at Love Field in Dallas before we took off for Washington. So there were just those the two of us, and we had some supplements from uh, the Washington field office, and we had the three agents that were responsible for Caroline and John helping us as well. But it was very limited, so for that next, not just 72 hours, but for the next, oh, about five or six days, it was uh, sleep was... Not one of the considerations we had. We, we, we just had to keep going as best we could. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I've heard a rumor that uh, Mrs. Kennedy late at night went and went back to uh, President Kennedy's grave. Uh, do you know if that's true? And if so, like, did you accompany her? Yeah, the night of the funeral, the twenty-fifth of uh, November. She uh, and that also just uh, so you know that happened to be John Kennedy Jr.'s third birthday. Uh, She had promised John when we left for Texas that when they came back, he'd have a birthday party. 
So after the funeral was over, after all the heads of state had gone through the receiving lines, wishing Mrs. Kennedy condolences and, and all that, she took the time to go upstairs in the White House and had a little birthday party for John. It was a very few people, just a few of his cousins were there and a couple of the staff. But then she told me she said she would like to go back to the gravesite that night. So it was around 11 p.m. or so, and she called down to my office and said that she was ready to go and that Robert Kennedy would be going with her. So I had the car come around, and we, I took her over to Arlington National Cemetery. I had said, called up the superintendent over there to make sure everything was okay. And uh, so we went over to the cemetery. It was just she and Robert Kennedy, myself, my driver, and my assistant, Paul Landis, was in another car uh, just uh, behind a surveillance. And uh, the two of them, Mrs. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, went to the gravesite. There was one sentry there, and that was all. And uh, they knelt and prayed, and she had brought a little bouquet of flowers to lay on the grave. And so and then we, I took her back to the White House. We got back to the White House around midnight. Awesome to hear. Yeah, that is incredible. And, you know, as I think about your journey in life, for some people, maybe that's the most that they know about you if unless they've read your books. Yeah. And so, you know, as we look ahead and you are still working professionally for three more presidents, talk to us a little bit about any struggles that maybe you went through uh, personally or professionally during, you know, those next those next few years. Sure. <clears throat> All right. They had me stay with Mrs. Kennedy for the next year for until just after the presidential election in 1964. So I was with her as she moved out of the White House on December 6th. First, we had uh, the week right after the assassination and right after the funeral, uh, took her up to uh, Hinesport to see the president's father and mother. And that was over Thanksgiving uh, weekend of 1963. Then we returned to the White House, and then uh, we moved her out of the White House on December 6th. And she uh, moved. She didn't have any place to go. And so Ambassador Averill Harriman and his wife moved out of their house in Georgetown and uh, left their staff. And so she and the two children moved in there. Then a house became available across the street. She bought that. She moved over there. The tourist situation became so terrible that uh, she just couldn't tolerate it anymore. And so she, she and I went to New York. And she found a, an apartment, uh, a condo, I guess it, what you'd call it, in New York. It was at 1045th Avenue. And she bought that, and she moved to New York. Uh, now, I stayed with her till just after the election in 64. Then I was reassigned to the White House detail for the Johnson. And so I went to that detail. The first thing that happened was we went to the LBJ Ranch. And while we were there, I um, was walking one point from one point to another near the ranch house, and President Johnson saw me. He recognized me as being having been with uh, the Kennedys, and he wasn't so sure he could trust me. <clears throat> so he asked if I that they would please reassign me. Wow! 
And so then uh, my boss went to him. Uh, Rufus Youngblood was his name. And he and Rufus had a very good relationship. And Rufus told him that it was in his best interest to have me stay there. Because I was a professional. I'd been with the Eisenhowers. And then I was with the Kennedys. But he, Rufus, thought it was in Johnson's best interest if I stay. So Johnson said, okay, we'll give it a try. So I stayed on the detail. A few years later, they made me the agent in charge of his protection. So then I stayed with him until the end of the his term in office in 19, January 1969, when the Nixon-Agnew uh, administration began. At that time, they asked me to move over to become the agent in charge of vice presidential protection, which I did for one year. Then I was moved to headquarters as the deputy assistant director of protection. Now, during that time, from 1964 until 1970, I was kept so busy, I really didn't have time to focus on very much about what had happened in Dallas, other than the fact I had to appear before the Warren Commission and I had to write statements for the Warren Commission. But I was so busy that it just didn't have time to think about that. But once I got that job at headquarters, it meant that I was at a desk. I was dealing with budgets, logistics, personnel, that kind of thing. And so I had plenty of time to think. And what I thought about was what had happened in Dallas. How did we let that happen? What could we have done differently? What could I have done differently? And it just started to eat at me. And I, it, the, the more I thought about it, the worse I felt. Emotionally, it was just driving me crazy. My physical condition started to deteriorate. I saw, I don't know how many different doctors. My gastroenterologist was a frequent stop for me. Um, in 1970, uh, then in uh, 1975, I had to take my annual physical examination. We were given an annual physical, very thorough, out of Bethesda Naval Hospital. One of the doctors that was giving me an exam was a friend of mine. He had been on the White House medical staff, Bill Voss. He was a Navy captain. And after the exam was over, he came out and he said, Clint, he says, I don't know how to tell you this. I said, but you didn't pass your physical. They're going to have to retire you. Now, I was 43 years old. I'd been in the service 17 years, and it was devastating to me to know that my my whole career in the Secret Service is over. But it was. Now, I had really done pretty well, I thought, up at that lab point. But then... After that, I really went into a period of depression. And I started to drink heavily. I lived on, really lived on alcohol. It's the only way I could sleep. I cut off all ties with friends. I never talked about the, what happened to Dallas with anyone, not even my own family. I, and it just was eating me up. And by 1982, I was a mess. 
And finally, my doctor told me, he said, look, Clint, he said, you've got a choice to make. Live or die. If you want to live, you've got to completely quit what you've been doing. So I did. I went cold turkey, quit drinking, quit smoking, started to work out a little bit. And just gradually over time, felt somewhat better. And physically, I improved a great deal. I improved enough. So in 1990, I decided to go back to Dallas. I wanted to personally go to Dealey Plaza, personally see the area again, go into the Texas School of Book Depository. I did all that. I spent some hours there just looking at the area and just trying to figure out what I could have done differently. And I came away knowing that I did everything I could that day. Considering everything, there wasn't anything else I could have done. And that helped me a lot. But I still had that sense of guilt that I should have been able to do more, that this should never have happened. And it wasn't until I was asked by a former agent and a friend of mine to help him and his uh, author, Lisa McCubbin, to write a book. It wasn't until then, and I started to talk to this lady, Lisa McCubbin, about my life in the Secret Service. It wasn't until I started to talk about that that I really started to recover. The more I talked about it, the better I felt. She convinced me to write a book called Mrs. Kennedy and Me. She told me it could be a tribute to Mrs. Kennedy, and so I agreed. Now, I had vowed that I would never write a book. I had been inundated with requests from people that wanted me either to contribute to a book or write a book. And I had said no. But now this time, I finally agreed. And the more I talked, the more I wrote, the better I felt. And so that's the only reason I'm even able to talk to you on the phone and describe what happened in Dallas. If it hadn't been for Lisa McCubbin, I'd never been able to do that. Well, thank you, Lisa. You know, yeah, this is, know. that's that's incredible. I mean, Clint, you were you have described visually so much of what you went through, and if it took writing about that, that should be a lesson to everybody out there. That in order to get through something, you know, find somebody that can be there to help support you, write about it, talk about it, and 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 it will, and with time, will get better. That's that's a great lesson. That's very true, and that's, you know, I, they had no definition of what uh, I was going through, but now they would call it PTSD. And I would say to anybody, the members of the military coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan or that gone through these traumatic situations or members of the uh, first responders that do it, the thing they have to do is they have to be able to find somebody they trust Talk about it. Get it out. Otherwise, it's just going to eat them up. That's great advice. Yeah. It sounds like meeting Lisa really helped you move forward. And I think you're just lucky to have met her. And uh, do you keep in touch with her? Do you guys still uh, you know, talk to this We're day? We're still writing books. Uh, we, she was my co-author on every book I've written. She, she is really a fantastic writer and uh, someone I can really trust. So it's uh, a pleasure to work with her. 
Oh, that's so exciting. There's a lot of things that, that uh, I can comment. One is your your memory. Uh, I mean, obviously, some days are going to stick with you, but you seem to, uh, um, I'm not going to reveal your age, but you're a little older, and for you, you know these days and you know these dates and these names uh, better than better than I do <laughs> with some of some things that I, well, I I don't mind revealing my age. I'm 85 years old. So. All right. Awesome. Wanted to make sure you did it, not me. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, this, this podcast is, we're, we're normally a little lighter, um, and, and a little, uh, a little less serious of a topic, but this is by far one of my favorites so far. Oh, me too. Yeah. I mean, Clint, just hearing about how you took us from being, you know, a young, a young boy, adopted growing up all the way through, you know, writing your first book is, is incredible. So, you know, what, what, what is daily life like for you these days? Well, when, when we're in the process of writing book, it's a matter of uh, doing an awful lot of research to make sure that when I, te- when I tell Lisa McCubbin something that's going to be a part of a book, I want to make absolutely sure I'm a hundred percent correct. That my, Memory is so I'll go online and, and go into uh, newspaper archives, or I'll call up other agents to just to double check to make sure I got all my facts straight. I, that's the one thing I will just can't tolerate is having anything in one of those books I've written that's not truth, and uh, that's very important to me. Yeah, that's a, that's exciting. Are you in the process, if you don't mind, maybe previewing of? Is anything on the horizon for you? Something, uh, an opportunity you're excited about in the near future? Well, right now I'm I'm acting as a research assistant to Lisa McCubbin, and I guess I can tell you that Lisa McCubbin is in the process of writing a biography of Betty Ford. All right. She was asked to do so by. Uh, our publisher, Simon Schuster, uh, Ford's daughter, Susan Ford, and their youngest son, Stephen, uh, have given their approval. They've been very helpful to her, as have all the friends of the Ford family. And so she's deeply immersed in that process. At the present time, we've been going cross-country at uh, various places. We spent a lot of time in Michigan, where they had their home in Grand Rapids. And so it, that's been a real uh, busy time for us, both of us. And I happen to know a great many of the people that were involved with the Fords when they were the vice presidency and the presidency. So I'm helpful to Lisa in that regard, and I'm sure it's going to be a successful book. Well, we, we wish you well with that, and, I'm, and we're both looking forward to it. Um, you know, one of the things we like to ask our guests is uh, – you know, basically, we, we talk to some entrepreneurs and, and people that, that are uh, that are in their field and masters of their field, and we always ask them to give advice to somebody who is, like, just starting. Now, you're a little bit different because uh, there's not a whole lot of people that are going to be going into your line of work, uh, but let's take the... Um, after the uh, post-traumatic experience part, and how about we, uh, like, I know you touched on a little bit earlier, but uh, what, do you, what do you advise um, everybody do um, that, that deals with some type of stressful situation, and, and, and what else, aside from just talking about it, helped you get through it? Keeping busy, uh, that's important, too. Finding something you really enjoy and doing it 
don't just sit in a chair and watch television all day long. Uh, that's the worst thing you can do. I think the best thing I've done is to, just to be active, uh, especially at 85 years of age. And I travel a lot. I mean, I'm on a plane almost every week. So uh, I think that's benefited me a lot. It has physically and mentally. Uh, and just the process of doing research, that's uh, it's mental stimulation is what it is. And so that's been beneficial. Uh, and stay close to your family. That's important. I have two sons. Uh, I'm closer to them now than I've ever been. They really were brought up by their mother. She and I no longer have a relationship. But uh, my two sons and I are as close or closer than we've ever been. And that's very important to me. Uh, and I think it should be to anybody who you have to have that kind of that backing, that uh, sense of family in order to really get through life and be happy. Yeah. Well said, you know, Clint, this is you know, this podcast is guys telling stories and we're always looking for that fascinating story and hoping that it, it can inspire some people to, you know, live the way they want to live and, uh, and go after their dreams. And I think we, we really, we really scored with this one. Bill. Yeah. It's an honor to talk to you. Yeah. This is, this is incredible. So, you know, Clint, maybe one more time, if people want to find you online or, you know, find out more about your books, uh, where's the best place for them to go? ClintHillSecretService.com. That should give them an, an opportunity to uh, check out the books we've written and uh, order them if they so desire. Yeah, everybody, please check out his website. And Clint, I'll say, uh, you know, from uh, from bottom of my heart, thanks so much for sharing your stories and doing the interview. Yeah, I appreciate it well, as well. It's been a pleasure for me. I'm very glad I was able to do this. Great. Thank you both very much. Thank you very much. Clint Hill. That was uh, amazing. That was powerful, and it might be one of my favorite episodes uh, of all time. Powerful is um, exactly the word because, uh, you know, I mentioned uh, you mentioned history and English being your favorite subjects. They weren't mine, and part of the reason is um, there was nobody like Clint Hill telling me how this happened. What what he saw uh, is basically you have a teacher up there telling you what happened and it's completely different when it comes from someone like Clint who was there um, who tried to save two people and, and obviously I know they risked their that's what that's part of their job but to hear him the way he the way he did it and, and the way he it bothered him to it is it's powerful is a great word yeah I loved all the stories and uh, and I you know when we first started this podcast I was like let's find some fascinating people and you know hear the story from the person who lived it and wow we just did that that was great that was great yeah so again i want to uh thank our friends at blue apron blue apron delivers fresh ingredients and great recipes right to your door it, it takes the hassle out of grocery shopping and all the ingredients are pre-portioned so you get 30 dollars off your first order go to our website guystellingstories.com and click try it home yeah and thanks again to our website provider banzoogle Banzoogle has everything you need to build a stunning website in minutes. So remember to go to our website, guystellingstories.com, and click on Try at Home to get your new website's first 60 days of service for free. That's guystellingstories.com. Click on Try at Home to get your new website's first 60 days for free. 
So I wouldn't mind at some point maybe touching base with him again. Um, a couple of times you could tell the emotion in his voice. I think it, he'd be great to talk to again. Absolutely. I think this is new territory for us with the podcast. And um, I'm really excited about the way this season three has been going. We're getting some amazing stories from first-person perspective, people that, that live those stories. So if you like what you hear, please let us know. And please support Clint. You know, Check out his website and maybe uh, read one of his books and, uh, and, and you know send him a little message too. ClintHillSecretService.com. Awesome. Well, as always, guys, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast. Tell a friend, tag him in a post, share Clint's episode with us. We'd be really proud of you if you did. And as always, I'm Rich Douglas. I'm Bill Easton. Okay. Until next time.